Hey everybody, welcome to this episode of Enlightenment Today. I'm Jason. Today we're going to speak about the eight limbs of yoga, or more commonly known as the eightfold path of yoga. Now what are the eight limbs of yoga? The eight limbs of yoga come from classical yoga, from the founding father of yoga, Patanjali, and his great scripture, the Yoga Sutras. Now this is Patanjali's method of practical spirituality for us. This is what the eight limbs of yoga are. Now what are the eight limbs of, of this practical spirituality of Patanjali? Well first you have Yama, which is discipline. Second you have Niyama, which is a restraint. Third is Asana, which is posture or sit or to seat. Fourth you have Pranayama, which is breath control. Fifth you have Prachahara, which is sense withdrawal. Sixth you have Dharayana, which is concentration. Seven, you have jhana, which is meditation or meditative absorption. And the eighth limb is samadhi or ecstasy, as we commonly know it. Now, this eightfold path is regarded as a ladder in some sense. Okay, so this ladder of eight limbs of yoga leads from our normal life of self-involvement to the uncommon realization of the self, of the transcendental self, the purusha the pure awareness which is beyond the personality. This is what this, these eight limbs do. It acts in a manner as almost like a ladder. Now there's actually two ways to see this in the Yoga Sutra, two angles that we could, two views we could see these eight limbs within the Yoga Sutras. So first of all, the Eightfold Path consists in the growing unification of consciousness with the Purusha, okay? And the second angle is that the Eightfold Path presents itself as a matter of progressive purification. Okay, so you have this, these two views where there's the, the growing unification of consciousness and also the progressive purification of, the, of your being. Now to understand this, these eight limbs of yoga, we need to unpack each limb. Okay, so the first limb, Yama, which we mentioned as discipline relates to ethics. Now, which is the now ethics, as you probably know, is the foundation of uh, yoga itself, and also the foundation of a lot of other spiritual traditions. So, what yama really means here in the eight limbs, according to the individual, is moral discipline. Okay. So, the practice of yama is basically based on five moral obligations that we need to follow if we are sincere in the practice of yama and the, and, and the eightfold paths of yoga. Now these five moral obligations are ahimsa, non-harming, satya, truthfulness, astaya, non-stealing, brahmacharya, chastity, and aparigara, greedlessness. Now let's begin with ahimsa, okay, the first moral obligation. Now most people might know ahimsa because it's it's related to um, especially the diet in, in Indian culture where most people are vegetarian. And this is one aspect of Ahimsa and also not hurting another being. A lot of ancient physicians and, and sages actually in India actually believe that ahim, if you follow Ahimsa, it actually, um, if you, it actually prolongs your life. They believe that if you do harm to others, this reduces your lifespan. But on the other hand, Ahimsa prolongs life because it represents a positive life-enhancing state of mind. 
So a, a yogin's motivation for cultivating ahimsa comes from the impulse towards unification and transcendence of the ego. So as a result, the yogins seek to nurture these attributes that will help them realize what the Bhagavad Gita calls the vision of sameness or samadarshana. This is a vision that or this is a vision where we perceive the transcendental self within apparent duality. We, we become aware of the purusha within all beings. This is what this is, this is saying. So <clears throat> this is what the yogin does culti cultivate when they follow ahimsa. So this is the first moral obligation. The second moral obligation is uh, satya, truthfulness. And this is a no-brainer. This is you need to be truthful in thoughts and deeds and all everything that you do in your life. Now, we all know how tricky the mind is. The mind can elaborate stories. It can sometimes tell a lot of white lies and, you know, accentuate the truth a little bit. And this is actually against the eight limbs of yoga. This is against that the, the moral obligation of satya, of truthfulness. You need to be truthful in everything you do. Now, the third moral obligation Astaya, so non-stealing, is actually linked to ahimsa because when you steal from a person, you are actually violating them. You are, you are violating them because you are stealing something from them. That is a form of violence, actually. So this is linked to ahimsa, this non-stealing moral obligation. Now, the fourth moral obligation is brahmacharya, um, which is uh, chastity. Now, this is basically... Um, a core practice within a lot of religious traditions where you know you have priests and saints and that who who practice chastity they, they never have sexual activity ever so chastity in the sense of this of um the, as the fourth moral obligation of yama is basically the abstention from sexual activity no matter whether that's in deeds thoughts or words so that might be a difficult practice for a lot of people to apply but that's what this moral obligation within Yama actually requires. Now, the fifth moral obligation is greedlessness. As I said, aprigrara, which is a difficult Sanskrit word to pronounce. Now, greedlessness is basically the non-accepting acceptance of gifts. So why they practice this is because when you continually accept gifts and so forth and so on, or you, can, or you buy certain stuff, this generates a lot of attachment okay this is why greedlessness is the fifth moral obligation so the practice of greedlessness is actually voluntary voluntary simplicity so making your life very simple um, because the idea is that if you have too much stuff in your life um, if you have too many possessions this actually distracts the mind so there's an emphasis on renunciation within this fifth uh, moral obligation. So re renunciation is actually integral here, not so much the physical renunciation, the physical renunciation of gifts, but also the mental renunciation of your attachment to certain things. So now we come to the second limb of yoga, which is niyama. So I mentioned before, niyama, restraint. So this really means self-restraint. So the focus of the five rules of yama, the first limb was about harmonizing our relationship with other beings but the focus of niyama on the other hand is concerned with the inner life and how to harmonize our life to the, 
to the greater life and the transcendental reality. That's the focus of Niyama. It's more of an inward thing as opposed to Yama is more of a moral and social limb. So the five rules of Niyama are Shauka, purity, Samtosha, contentment, Tapas, austerity, and Svajaya, study. And the last one is Ishvara Pranidhana, devotion to the Lord. These are the five the five rules of Niyama. Okay, so the first rule being purity, being Shalka, is, is based on both external and internal. So external purity requires obviously taking a bath and proper diet. But the focus of this rule is more about on mental purity. So more about concentration and meditation. This is what it's based more on. Now, the second rule, Samtasha, which is based on, which is contentment. Now, this contentment is actually diametrically opposed to our modern consumerism, you know, our modern consumer mentality. So this contentment is trying to teach you to be happy just with what you have, no matter what it is you have. And so when you have this constant practice of contentment, you have this experience of everything with equanimity. So there's no high, there's no low, you see both um, the same, mutual actually. So the third rule of Niyama is tapas, austerity. So tapas is, these are basically practices um, of immobilizing sitting and standing, immobilizing sitting and standing. The ability, the ability to bear hunger, thirst, cold and heat, and also formal silence and fasting. These are parts of tapas, the ability to, to be in silence for extended periods of times and the ability to physically fast. Now the idea of this, of tapas, of austerity, is that if you follow these practices that I just mentioned, then there is this great energy that is produced, which actually gives birth to this higher awareness, this higher state of consciousness. This, this is why it is very important as part of the five rules of niyama. Now the fifth, oh, sorry, the fourth um, rule of niyama, svadhyaya, study, is basically not, don't think about intellectual study. This doesn't really have anything to do with intellectual learning. It's about diving into the hidden meanings of the scriptures, the ancient scriptures. So this is the ability to absorb yourself into ancient wisdom, which you could say in some sense is intellectual learning if you wanna be clever. But this is not really accumulating data and so forth and so on. It's about contemplating the mysteries of life through these hidden scriptures and, and ancient wisdom. Now, the fifth rule of Niyama, as I mentioned, was devotion to the Lord. So what does the Lord mean here? Now, this is where it gets confusing because there's many different interpretations of God and the Lord throughout the world. Patanjali's view is that he uses the word Ishvara. This is why it's known as Ishvara Pranidhana. Now, Ishvara is one of the multiple but coalescing transcendental selves, Purusha. So Ishvara's status among the many selves is due to the fact that it can never be subject to the illusion that it is deprived of its omniscience and omnipresence, which seems, you know, might seem confusing, but, you know, Patanjali did incorporate the concept of the Lord into his dualistic system because he actually believed in it. That was the idea here. His idea of Ishvara was not only that 
he thought it needed a concept of the Lord within the eight limbs of yoga or in the yoga sutras, but he actually believed in the presence of, of, a, of a God. But in this sense, you can't think of the God in the, in the normal terminology. As I said, this is related to one of the multiple but coalescing transcendental selves, the Purusha, which it can appear confusing. So, put it, so Ishvara here is not a creator like, um, like the Judeo-Christian God, nor is it a universal absolute like we discover in the Upanishads or the scriptures of Mahayana Buddhism. Okay. So now we come to the third limb of yoga, of uh, Patanjali's philosophy of practical spirituality, which is asana. Now, a lot of people are, are familiar with asana because you know a lot of people practice hatha yoga in the world. Now, asana um, literally means seat or to sit, or in this sense, posture. It doesn't really emphasize which posture. Now, when we looked at the first two limbs, now the first two limbs were about regulating the social and personal life, okay? So this reduces the production of unwholesome volition and action, which usually you know, increases our karmic stock within the samskara level. Okay, this is why yama and niyama are important. Um, now this is why niyama and yama are basically focused on um, the right environment within and without, how to cultivate that um, to contribute to the transformation of consciousness. Whereas asana is the next level its focus is on the psycho psychosomatic organism. It's the focus of practice and internalizing the first two. And this has um, a tremendous effect on the endocrine, endocrine system. So the practice of these postures, um, whether that be sitting meditation or some of the Hatha Yoga postures, postures that people are familiar with, this has a tremendous effect on the transformation of consciousness within the psychosomatic organism. So as I said, the first two, Yama and Niyama were focused on the social and personal, where Asana is more focused on the actual deep level of the psychosomatic organism. Now we come to the fourth limb of yoga, which is Pranayama, breath control. Okay. Now, to understand Pranayama, you need to understand Prana life force, the concept of life force energy that, that um, flows through the psychosomatic organism. Now this is known as chi in China, but it's known in Sanskrit as prana. Now, what is prana? So basically, when you are, when you are no longer distracted by muscular tensions and external, external stimuli, you become more attuned to prana circulating in your body. So when, you, when you're not identifying with the tension within your body, um, being overwhelmed by the external environment, you start to become aware of this prana within you. And obviously, um, Hatha Yoga and Siddhi Meditation like, helps to become more conscious of prana. So pranayama, the practice of pranayama, breath control, is basically a practice to influence the bioenergetic field of the body, okay? So it's a practice of influencing this, this life force within our body, becoming conscious of it and the movement and being able to move it within your psychosomatic organism. But keep in mind that moral disciplines, self-restraints, sensory inhibition, and concentration can also do this as well. You don't just have to do pranayama or breath control to do this. But the focus is, with the regulation of the breath combined with concentration, the prana can be stimulated 
and directed to any part of the body. You know, that's the focus in pranayama, becoming extremely conscious of your breath and being able to control it like a master. As we see a lot of Hatha yogis around the world, they employ a lot of pranayama and you can see them doing a lot of tricks with their body and so forth and so on. And also, you know, achieving miraculous things. And um, this is just the movement of prana within the body, becoming conscious of that. And you, become, you can become conscious of that just in simple practice of meditation and also becoming more conscious of your inner world. You can become conscious of this life force. So now we come to the fifth limb of yoga, which is pratyahara, sense withdrawal. Now, the practice of both posture and breath control leads to a progressive desensitization that blocks out external stimuli. Uh, so what happens then is when consciousness is effectively sealed off from the environment, this is the state of sensory inhibition, pratyahara. So this is when, when you seal off the environment through the practice, you know, posture and breath control help to do this. This, this, this does, um, this is a progressive desensitization that does, you know, ultimately begin to block out the external world. This is, this leads to naturally to pratyahara. But you don't need to think that when you're in this state of pratyahara that you are, you know, empty and blank and just lying on the ground like a log in a coma, which is what a, a lot of people believe. They reckon if they get to this state of pratyahara that because they're not um, attracted or engaged to the gravitational pull of the external world, they're just gonna be, you know, unconscious. But, you know, the miraculous thing is that when you get down to this state of sensory inhibition is that the mind becomes very active at that very subtle level. What is that activity? Why does that happen? Now, this is demonstrated by experiments on sem sensory deprivation. So we all, we've all heard of the sensory deprivation tanks or isolation tanks, which were created by the American physician and neuroscientist, John C. Lilly. Now, what they realized is that through this sensory inhibition, something else is going on here. Not, it's not literally that you begin to hallucinate, which is what people believe. They believe when the mind becomes active at this subtle level, down when the senses are inhibited, that a lot of people believe that we begin to hallucinate or trip out. And this is actually not really, especially um, what, not what yogis, yo yogins verify, or, and not even what John C. Lilly verified. Sensory inhibition has nothing to do with hallucination or sleep, but instead it's about holding the mind steady on an object of concentration. So the mind becomes steady and it can be absorbed on a point of contemplation. So it is very steady and stable as opposed to hallucinating and tripping or anything to do with sleep. So this is pratyahara is the ability to hold this mind steady and being able to focus directly on this object of concentration. So now we come to the sixth limb of yoga, dharana, concentration. Now this limb is a direct continuation of the process of sensory inhibition. Now the reason for this is because dharana is the holding of the mind in a motionless state. So keep that in mind. It's the holding of the mind in a, motional, in a motionless state. So the verbal root of dharana is dri, which means to hold. So what is held? 
Now what is held is the attention. The, the attention is fixed on an internalized object, an internalized object. That's where the attention is fixed. This is why it is a direct continuation from Pratyahara, the, the previous limb. Now the underlying process of concentration is ekagrata. Now ekagrata means one-pointedness or focused attention. Okay, so one-pointedness or focused attention. This is the ability of dharana, concentration. But you need to think of it differently. Dharana is different from normal concentration, okay? So dharana is a whole body experience free from psychosomatic tension. It is an extraordinary dimension of the psyche where creative inner work is born. So though dharana, so though keep in mind, but dharana is difficult. It's not something that you can just employ like normal concentration. It is a whole body experience. It is that subtle depth of the psyche where creativity and inner work are born. So, you know, to articulate or to explain the difficulty of this form of concentration, Charles Tart, who was a psychologist, he had a wonderful experiment. Now this experiment I want you to do if you're watching. So his experiment was, if you have a watch or a clock, pay attention to the second hand on the watch while simultaneously remain aware of your breathing. Okay, so keep, be aware, pay attention of the, the second hand, but also be conscious of your breathing. Now what most of you will probably experience is is that within five or 10 seconds, your, your mind starts to race or something else happens and your concentration is, is thrown off. This is what was Charles Tart's point. But this is a great experiment for cultivating dharana, the, the, the whole body experience okay, of concentration. Now dharana um, leads into the seventh limb. Now the seventh limb of yoga is jhana which is uh, meditation or meditative absorption. So we experience jhana when we're in prolonged um, concentration, when we are deepening our concentration. This, this leads to um, meditative absorption, jhana. So when we're in that state for a long time, the concentrated state, the dharana, then you start to become absorbed in, in a very subtle form of meditation, which is known as jhana. Now, this is where the internalized object fills the entire space of consciousness, okay? So the, the internalized object of contemplation or whatever it may be, fills the whole space within your consciousness. So the underlying process of jhana is ekatanata, which is one flowingness. It, that can be translated as one flowingness. So this is where the, the wakefulness is intensified. It's intensified that much that you begin to have little or no awareness of the external environment. This is the, the purpose of jhana. And this is, uh, jhana is the original practice which leads into to Zen Buddhism. You know, you have jhana, then it became chan in China, and then it became Zen in Japan. This is this uh, wakefulness, which is very intensified, where everything becomes blocked out and you are just within yourself with in, contemplating whatever it may be. It fills the whole space of consciousness. 
Now, British psychologist John H. Clarke, he explains what this experience of jhana is. Meditation is a method by which a person concentrates more and more upon less and less. The aim is to empty the mind while paradoxically remaining alert. Normally, if we empty our minds as we do when we settle down to sleep, for instance, counting sheep to narrow our thoughts, we become lethargic and eventually go to sleep. The paradox of meditation is that it both empties the mind and at the same time encourages alertness. This is the paradox of jhana, which John H. Clarke points out. So the point of uh, this yogic meditation of jhana is to intercept the flux of ordinary mental activity, which is known in Sanskrit as vritti. Now that's the point of jhana, is to intercept this normal flux of mental activity that most of us carry with us each day. Now there are five categories of this mental activity, which I'll explain. The first one is pramana, which is knowledge derived from perception, inference, or authoritative testimony. The second is viparaya, which is misconception or perceptual error. Okay. The third one is vikalpa, conceptual knowledge or imagination. The fourth is nidra, sleep, and the fifth is smriti, memory. Okay. So in the, the seventh limb of yoga, jhana, there's a process of restriction to deal with this mental activity. Okay. And there's actually three major levels within this process of restriction. So the first one is vritti naroda, which is the restriction of the five mental activities, which I just mentioned. The second one is prachaya naroda, which is the restriction of the present ideas in various types of conscious ecstasy, samprajnata samadhi, and I'll explain samprajnata samadhi in a minute. And the third one is samskara naroda. Now this is the restriction of subliminal imprints or activators or mental impressions, um, which disable the depth of memory itself, where the habits and traits, our vasanas, constantly generate new psychomental activity. So samskara naroda is, is basically <clears throat> the elimination of that deep karmic stock that we have within us. And this is what jhana uh, provides. Jhana, the practice of jhana, meditative absorption, um, begins to uproot a lot of this karmic stock that we have. And that's what the practice of samskara naroda does. Now, jhana naturally leads to the eighth limb and the final limb of Patanjali's eight limbs of yoga, which is samadhi or ecstasy. A lot of people are familiar with samadhi, this word, and a lot of people have interesting ways of interpreting it. So this samadhi is basically complete annihilation of the karmic stock wound up in our samskaras. So as I mentioned, the practice of samskara naroda within jhana, this begins the process of stepping into samadhi and we start to annihilate the karmic stock within our samskara level, our, our deep subliminal level. Now, the, the, when we begin to uproot that, we start to have this feeling of samadhi, this feeling of ecstasy, but you can't confuse this with 
uh, work with what a lot of people confuse it with, which is trance or unconsciousness. Samadhi is actually bliss, non-associated non bliss, a bliss that naturally arises from within, which is not associated to any external object or emotion. Okay, it's just this bliss that we have deep within us, but often is never uncovered. This is what samadhi naturally is within the yogic system. So, Patanjali, he, he actually distinguishes two species of samadhi. Now there's conscious ecstasy, samprajnata samadhi, which I mentioned earlier, and supraconscious ecstasy, which is asamprajnata samadhi. Now these two correspond to the Vedanta distinctions of formative ecstasy, which is Savikalpa Samadhi, and formless ecstasy, which is Nirvikalpa Samadhi. So when we look at these two species of Samadhi, if we look at Samprajnata Samadhi, Samprajnata Samadhi is basically still based on an object of contemplation. So this still implies a subject and object. So a subject contemplating an object. This is sub samprajnata samadhi, conscious ecstasy. So being fully focused and present on a particular object, and an, an internalized object, I should say, whatever that may be. The second species, asamprajnata samadhi, is that there is no object of contemplation, nor is there a subject contemplating. So this is the elimination of the idea of a object and a subject. So this is the elimination of the subject-object split, you could say. So asamprajnata samadhi is basically the absorption in the self, in the purusha, the pure awareness, and experiencing its eternal freedom, which we have deep within us. This is the, the highest level within the eight limbs of yoga, this asamprajnata samadhi. So when we are in asamprajnata samadhi for long periods of time, the fire of this ecstasy gradually transmutes, transmutes the unconscious, destroying all the samskaras that give birth to new egoic activity and its resulting karma. When you get to that level, all of the karma is destroyed. All of that which is wound up within your samskaras begins to be eliminated. And when you follow that, those eight limbs, the purpose of following these eight limbs and getting to this point of Asamprajnata Samadhi on the eighth limb is liberation. Now, liberation is obviously the focus of most Eastern traditions, um, but from Patanjali's perspective, this liberation is the point of no return. It's like you've gone to the, the furthest shore and you are not coming back. So yoga, in this sense, basically implies the dropping of the finite body-mind. All right, so the, the complete dropping of that. So. According to yogic philosophy, a, liberating, a liberated being is in perfect aloneness or, or perfect solitude or isolation, which is known as kaivalya in Sanskrit. This doesn't mean isolation and doesn't mean isolation in nature or something like this. This isolation is the isolation of purusha, the transcendental self, from prakriti, nature, or the movement of uh, the universe. So. When you have isolated, you have become purusha and you have isolated yourself from prakriti, which is everything within the world, then you are, in a sense, from Patanjali's perspective, liberated from rebirth because you've, you've come to your 
true identity, the transcendental self, which in yogic philosophy is actually separate from Prakriti, from nature. This is why it's a dualistic philosophy. Now this differs, this idea of liberation actually differs to Vedanta, because Vedanta is based on non-dual liberation, so they, the perspective that you can be liberated right now, um, the idea of a Jivan Mukta, you, know, you can be liberated within the body, is, is a perspective in Vedanta. But Patanjali doesn't, doesn't subscribe to these views. Okay, So he subscribes to this other view of liberation, which I pointed out, which according to him comes at the end of this, these eight limbs of yoga. So when we look at the eight limbs of yoga, this yogic technology, it is only a ladder we climb to eventually cast it off at the last moment. So we climb this ladder and we throw it off at the last moment. Patanjali's eight limbs of yoga are a guide for us to realize our inherent freedom, which gives us the power to see reality as it is in its purely naked state beyond all mental conditioning, frameworks and points of view. That's Patanjali's perspective and that's his great wisdom, which he left behind. And I believe that the eight limbs of yoga is a is a still sufficient to follow in our modern day. It's a great, not not just a, a personal system for your own liberation, but also to be a authentic individual in society. It's a beautiful system to follow. So I hope you enjoyed this episode today, and I hope you dive more into the eight limbs of yoga because I've only just scratched the surface, but continue to explore. The, the great master's wisdom, Patanjali of yoga, and continue to liberate yourself in this life or from this life. It depends on your own perspective. And I'll see you again next time. Hey everybody, thank you for watching this episode of Enlightenment today. If you enjoyed this episode and want to see more, please subscribe to my YouTube channel right here. Also, to watch some of my previous episodes of Enlightenment today, click down here, okay? So thank you for watching and let's continue to learn, grow and love more together.